G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Murch and our last guest, Zanny, their album An Accurate History of Electronic Dance Music has now been released and we'll have a feature chat with them about the new album and feminism coming up very soon. We've also got a chat with Olivia Newton-John's friend, Kelly Lang, and Charles Firth of The Chaser. But today, our feature guest is... Joe Hildebrand, from Studio 10 to regular on Sunrise 7, having also done time on the ABC and Triple M radio, nowadays writes for the Daily Telegraph, appears on Sky News, and when John caught up with him, was in at nine preparing to host the Drive radio show on Sydney's number one station, 2GB. Welcome to Radio Notes. So good to be with you, John. It's an absolute pleasure. On your Drive show on the 14th of November, you said... Yep. Country is the best kind of music. Let's start there. Yes. Well, there's country and there's country. But yeah, no, my favourite, I find as I get older, um, I, I used to want to be a rock and roll star and then I quickly became too old for that. And now I realise I have no choice but to become a country music star. Workshop that. What kind yep. of country do you mean? As you said, you're not 50 yet. So, <laughs> are you claiming the Keith Urban side, or is there some of these? No, I'm not. I'm not a fan of the big slick Nashville sound. Um, I like the the stripped back. I like um, I like the chicks mostly. Although I have to say, my spiritual guru is probably Lyle Lovett, and he is obviously pretty slick at times. But uh, but I actually like his stripped back stuff. He is fantastic. And I, I think in terms of um, Lucinda Williams, early Lucinda Williams, fantastic. In Australia, I just love Casey Chambers. I adore her. She can do no wrong. She can is bring it the, a tear to a grown man's eye. Is it that broken vocal, that vulnerable vocal? The vocal fry. Yeah, I, I do like that a lot. I like raw vocals. But it's also just the simplicity of it. They're not trying to do too much. I often feel like... There's really just one song in the world. It's just that people keep redoing it till they get it right. And that's what I like about country, that you're actually just, you're not after trying to be too clever or to complicate things or to do something that is too ostentatiously new. You're just trying to get that sweet, sweet sound and that sweet sort of resolve, just that right, you know, that right mix of, you know, A, D and E or right sort of hammer on or the right twang in the right place with the right line that just makes you go, an example, Casey Chambers and Bernard Fanning doing Bittersweet, the the most achingly beautiful song. And it's um, it's pretty much just three chords. And that's that's all you need. And the verse is just a couple of chords. As a broadcaster and a communicator through words, is it also that storytelling element that such artists, have you mentioned there, can do? Yeah, although I think the, um, a good song can have good music and lyrics, but I don't think a good song can have good lyrics and music. So I think the music has to come first. So I don't think lyrics can carry a song, but certainly they can, they can elevate it. But the, the whole point of a song is that it, you know, the music makes the words do something more. So again, you can have a song as simple as Do Do Ron Ron, and it's unreal notwithstanding the fact that it was written by a murdering psychopath. And, and you can have, you know, I mean, we all love our Dylan, but you can have a Bob Dylan song that goes on and on and on and speaks all sorts of, you know, supposed profundities or whatever. And you just want to kill yourself by the end of it because it's just so 
so boring. All those endless minor chords. Although, of course, his best stuff is, 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 is better than anything. Let's talk about the live music aspect. Have you found yourself in the live music situation of this country music? And then we'll broaden it out to other music in a moment. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I, what did I do? Um, yeah, I used to, I used to go and um, uh, hang out at the pubs around Fitzroy, the 90s and the mid and late 90s. And that was my kind of scene. I was a little indie boy, a little indie rocker. And so I used to go and see all sorts of, wasn't so much country back in those days. It was mostly just indie rock. Let's I was take, a locksmith's groupie. I don't I was know if about you've ever say, heard of them. <laughs> well, let, let's take you back to Fitzroy. And yes, I had heard of the locksmiths. I was one of the few people in Adelaide who played them. Talk to us about the locksmith and what it was about connection with you. Well, the, um, the songwriter was my cousin's boyfriend at the time. So there was that. But no, I really loved them though. Again, it was just, you know, I like my music simple um i'm before country and indeed during i'm heavily into the blues as well i think music music needs to be simple music needs to be visceral and well i don't think anyone would accuse the locksmiths of being particularly visceral they do that again they they have really really simple songs most of the time or songs that sound deceptively simple even if occasionally they've got some other stuff going on uh the lyrics are extremely good but again, the songs where they go on sort of wild lyrical kind of flights without the big heavy musicality I don't go for. But there are some that just have really powerful... And because they did so, so much with so little, like there's just three of them. There's just a, a guitar, a bass and a snare drum. And so they came up with quite creative ways to sort of to create different sounds. Occasionally they'd bring in a, a session muso for you know one thing or another. But... I like that. I like the fact that they manage to do more with less and that they, they don't shy away from... I, I hate songs that are complex or immusical for the sake of it. Got to sound good. And if that means using the same three chords that have been on God's green earth since he invented the six string, then so be it. You've had a very illustrious student politics start. Mm. And I mention that because it's possible, I know if you were at Adelaide Uni, you would have definitely had a uni bar that you were attached to, or Flinders, you would have had a uni yeah, bar. Yeah. Talk to us about that experience of music in that uni bar scenario. We certainly did, yeah. We had, um, so yeah, I did uh, student politics and, uh, and a bit of student theatre as well, and, and student did the student paper, obviously. And it was all just sort of rolled together. So we'd have fundraisers for this and that. And they'd always, you know, the locksmiths would always be there or whoever it was. We could, we could haul in. So Union House at Melbourne Uni, there was always, always music there. It was a thriving scene. The, the live music scene in Melbourne at the time was sensational. And so within a, a couple of kilometre radius of, of Uni, particularly as you went from down to Carlton and, and Fitzroy, Collingwood, you know, it was almost every second pub would have had a music every you know every other uh, every other night it was awesome it was fantastic so it was um yeah absolutely chockers we were quite aware because all these adelaide bands disappeared so the underside of the reckoning undecided of course andrew p street and uh, the reckoning uh, shamers ended up in melbourne for a while yes and of course the bedridden i don't know if you claim them as adelaide or not yes we but, do uh, good excellent i always did i actually traveled um, I spent 12 hours on the overland train from Melbourne to Adelaide just to go there for one night so I could see the bedridden at a reunion gig 
which I thought would be my, my only chance in a lifetime to actually hear them live because they'd broken up when I first heard of them. I can't remember exactly where it was. All I remember is it was about a 50 degree Celsius day and it, the place looked like it was in the middle of the desert. It looked like the Mad Max scene. And then I got the train back the next day. So I spent about 24 hours on the train just so I could spend 24 hours in Adelaide to see the bedridden. And one of the first things I saw when I got off was that the bedridden were having another reunion gig in Melbourne. And then I found out they had reunion gigs pretty much every single month and probably played more in reunions than they did when they were actually officially a band. But anyway, that was one of the best, um, best 48 hours of my life. So you would have had batters in your orbit. Yeah, we had batters in orbit and Kirsty Stegwazi used yes. to play a lot at Empress, as I recall, in North Fitzroy. Um, and she was great. And, um, of course, Benjo, the, the big brooding cool one. They were probably one degree of separation from my usual groupie mate. So I, I didn't necessarily know them. I, I, I spoke to Kirsty a couple of times, but um, I didn't necessarily know them, but I knew people who know, knew them. And that, that to me was like the height of the height of fame. They, they were the coolest. I loved them. They were, they were my favourite Australian band probably ever. I actually tracked down their first couple of albums. Yep. Um, it's all fun and games until someone loses an eye and Big Scary Cow. And they are as good today. It's actually very hard to track them. You actually have to write to the one remaining member of the bedridden who's still got his shit together. And he's got these copies and he actually cut, I think, a couple of fresh cds for mm-hmm. me and and sent them through well that's good both, I, both it was the legendary si- they are the best and that's why adelaide i've always said that adelaide is the the greatest city in australia it's like melbourne before it got too cool but yeah so the bedroom are absolutely awesome so they're my they're the australian beatles except more hardcore and cool three two one recording you're 15 at some filthy teenage party getting drunk and you search among the bodies for someone who's still awake and is a spunk and you offer them a squeeze of the goonie bag of riesling you have brung and you pin them to the bean bag and try to reach their tonsils with your tongue and your friends might all be watching and it's difficult to look so cool or tough this person's hands stuffed down your pants and they never quite stuff it far enough And you know that in the morning when your parents come to take you from that place You have pashed, you have snogged, you gave tonguies and you've thoroughly sucked face Suck face, you know that you've sucked face Suck face, you know that you've sucked face Come back next week and you might make third base Three more hickeys and you'll have a necklace Suck face Still got snot from the last flu I had. The late batters from The Bedridden, solo there from an exclusive recording I did back in 1997. Now back to the 2022 chat with Joe Hildebrand. Has there been a, by seeing such, not grassroots, but such organic, as you say yourself, direct music that you do, has that encouraged you to pick up an instrument over the years? Well, I already had picked up an instrument. I'm already a failed musician, so I didn't need to. Yeah, so I, um, um, I just unfortunately when I was at uni, I spent more time playing the bong than I did playing the guitar. 
I, I just got easily distracted. But no, I've been playing piano since I was a very young boy and um, a bit of guitar. I'm not great at guitar, but um, I used to be an all right piano player and I still belt out a few tunes here and there. I saw some footage of, I think, when The Newborn had just been announced and there was a piano in the background. One of my best friends, who's also a muso in Sydney, and my beloved wife, actually, for my 40th birthday, got... Um, and they managed to do it all behind my back, believe it or not. They distracted me and got me out of the house and then smuggled the piano in while I was out. But they got me a second-hand Bechstein, I think it was, upright piano, which I think is the same one that Bob Dylan used to bash away at before he realised that guitars were more portable. So, yeah, I love that little piano. So I still um, belt away on that. So it's more of a rock and roll than a a classical. I used to, and and obviously we're all still in mourning for the passing of the great Jerry Lee Lewis. I used to do that sort of stuff, but nowadays it's much more blues, sort of rolling blues and, and country, you know. Try to master the hammer on on keyboard. I want to get a little personal with you. What song reminds you of Tara? Oh, well, well, the risk of sounding like an utter wanker, it would be one of the ones, one of many that I've written about her. Uh, so I have for my sins uh, written many songs and I've written a few for her. They're sort of, I'm not, I'm not sure how you would necessarily describe them. They're a bit country, um, a bit country bluesy. Are they sort of an autobiography of the life you have together, honing into the experiences you've had with well, they're, they're all Oh, yeah, but yeah. And, they're all, and they all have to express great um, sadness and dissatisfaction. I, don't, I think happy songs never, you know, if you're, if you're really happy and you want to tell everyone about it, just f*** off, who cares? And that's another reason I love country good good country songs are all sad they're all lamentations like you know all good country songs are howlingly hauntingly sad and and even if they're about something happy then you have to find a way to to make them sad all the songs i've written about all my past loves including my beautiful current wife would almost entirely be songs of dissatisfaction and outrage and how dare you do this to me or how dare you run away from me and how dare you leave me in a puddle of tears on the floor. I think I wrote a song called Please Don't Leave Me at the Airport. That was, that was a good one. That was about an ex who left me at the airport. And I also wrote another country song called Overland about the train from Melbourne to Adelaide. And was it around that bedridden trip? It was. That was easy. I think I wrote it as soon as I got back. But of course, it wasn't about how happy I was to go to see the bedridden. It was about a, what about a cap- woman who left me on the overland train. They all leave me, John. They all leave me. You except got, for one. I was about to say, you've got a ring. <laughs> <laughs> all relationships end badly, except for one, if you're lucky. Would you imagine releasing these tunes? Um, I don't think think so i don't i don't really see how i could now i think you need to i think if you're going to be a pseudonym yeah maybe i think if you're going to if you're going to um like i think if you're going to be a muso you have to be just that and i've done so much other stuff that i think it would be almost impossible to separate and for any audience if there was one to separate the songs from everything else and so we like if anthony albanese released an album Mm. Peter Garrett 
kind of did the opposite and went in the other direction. Um, it almost ends up sullying both. You know what I mean? I think you have to be one thing or the other. And um, my dad was a musician and I'm probably glad that I didn't end up doing that because as much as I'm sad that all my brilliant masterpieces probably won't see the light of day, I think I don't think I'd be anywhere near as good a, a person or a father as I am now if I had been a musician. I think musicians tend to... But what kind of musician was Gary? Um, my dad, it was, it was Greg, very Greg? close. Um, Sorry. No, that's all right. Folk musician mostly, but he also played country and blues, but he was just self-accompanied guitarist for the most part and he just played little coffee houses and, and little gigs so he's a very good good singer good interpreter of songs very good guitar player um, but didn't write very much as a broadcaster you yep. now get to interview musicians yes maybe not as many as you may like even <laughs> but what's been one of your most memorable and, and you may want to go back to studio 10 for this yeah. as well i'm thinking what's been one of the most memorable musician interactions you've had interview or otherwise I worked in the UK for, I did a sort of exchange program sort of thing, a secondment for the UK Press Association and was working there. And I just remember being absolutely staggered by the fact that there was just like a contact number for Paul McCartney, like in their contact. It's like, oh yeah, Macca, you know, like oh, this is his manager and you just give him a call yeah. if you want a quote. And I'm like, oh my God, like, you know, like everyone else in the world, just a, a Beatles tragic. Um, these people were sort of like gods to me. So I was just, I, I sort of just marvelled at that. Uh, years, years, years later, I was on Studio 10 and we actually had an interview with Ringo Starr. Uh, by that stage was 50% of the surviving Beatles. And while obviously Ringo Starr wasn't exactly the songwriting powerhouse by the Beatles, I really enjoyed that. Like just, just the fact that I'd just, just spoken to a Beatle. I think I was so nervous that I ended up just gibbering on and the poor bloke probably barely got a word in. But that was amazing, just, just to be able to say I spoke to a Beatle, that blew my mind. Casey Chambers came on the show and I just adore her. I love her. Um, I think she's probably the best songwriter in Australia or something like that. She's certainly, you know, whether or not she's the best, I, I can't think of anyone better. You can tell the music is just very honest um, and... And, and true. Again, she's just got a beautiful ear. She's just got a really nice ear. I went and heard her, li her live. She's just amazing. She's, she's, she's amazing. The way her and her, her, her family, you know, and pretty much anyone she sings with, the way she's able to blend her voice um, with theirs. I, I like, I love my tight harmonies and, and she's just great. She's terrific. She's a great interpreter of songs and a great and a, a brilliant songwriter. How does that music, may it be country or otherwise, how does the music move you? What does it do for Joe? Um, I think it's... I think in many ways, maybe like a, a good book, but I think, again, it's more... Like music, I think, is, you know, music is where God lies. Music is where, you know... Mu music is the thing, I think, that, that makes us human it's like the divine spark in all of us you know if you listen to something like you know side two of abbey road or well, i love it and emmy lou harris sing walk through the bottom land or you know casey chambers do the nullarbor song or 
or the bedridden. Some of the some of the bedridden's, um, you know, slower stripped back songs are just achingly beautiful, and of course, always sad, always tortured. That's very important. But I think it makes you feel less alone. I think a, a song, and and this is why I think the, you know, I think this is why the sadness is important. When you're happy, you don't really need anyone else. You don't really need any affirmation or any help. You don't need a crutch. You don't. A, a good a good aching love song reassures you you're not alone that you're not not the first person uh, as Michael Stipe said everybody hurts it makes you feel like part of something part of a bigger human experience instead of just some poor sod who's wretched and alone and grieving or sad I reckon that probably saves lives to be honest I reckon that probably stops people from topping themselves or helps people get back on their feet or helps you know helps them move on and I, I think that's amazing and there's there's not much else that can do that I don't know if you can get that from looking at a painting no, I think the only other thing is is live radio for which you do live radio that's right the only other the only other way you can experience is that is by listening well, to well, well no <laughs> I, say, I, I say that though because if you look at the work that Ben does here in the mornings now yes it's about that connection stuff yes Yes, that's right. And he's very much, and I think you are... There's the 5.30 club. <laughs> he literally, he's literally created a club. Yep. Just having that connection for those that are up and about. Well, that's why radio is so just utterly magnificent because it is the only medium where you can just talk to someone directly. You're not just talking at them. They're not just sitting there listening mm. to you and copying whatever you say, sweet, whether they like it or not. You can, you can actually have a conversation with a member of your audience... And that is the show. So the audience becomes the show. The audience is the, is part of the the show. And there's there's not really, not counting when a magician calls up someone from the crowd and saws them in half. Uh, but there's there's no other form of media like it, which which is why it's so incredibly intimate and exciting. And and again, it fit, like you you people feel like you know. So when I'm wandering around in the real world or whatever, people would just strike up a conversation with you as though they've just left off as though they've known you your whole life. And I love that. And it's also the fact, and this is something you've learnt and I appreciate that you've learnt this, is that there is a listener. Yes, that's right. There may be yeah. many listener, yeah. but there is a listener. Yeah, that's right. Well, no one's, I mean, you know, you don't listen to the radio with 999,000 other people next to you. You're there by yourself in your car or you in the morning you're lying in bed. Like it's, it is really... And I found that also with morning television. They're listening to it or watching it, um, you know, when they're in bed, when they're in the kitchen, when they're home alone during the day or doing, perhaps even doing something else, but doing, doing things that, that it's not just a show that someone puts on and they sit back and watch, mm. that it's something that feels very much part of their lives. And that's, I think, what McKnight was able to do is he was able to give each one of you your individual voice for whatever that listener is to go, oh, that, that's my mate Joe. Yeah, oh, hang yeah, on, Andrew's right. saying yeah, yeah, something. Yeah. But it wasn't just two talking heads. Well, I think we, I mean, on the show, we were, a gr- on, on that show, we were a group of friends and we all genuinely loved each other. And I think that comes through. So we were like a family that would have squabbles and fights, but ultimately all love each other, even though we're all quite different and blah, 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 blah. That sort of... Um, rippled out to the audience as well. Like we'd also have audience members who were very, very loyal and invested in the show, people who would come in live and we'd, we knew them all, we'd mm. see them all. Um, went to the funeral of one of them, 
Yeah. Which I suppose is how, you know. And you'll do, you'll do that for radio as well. <laughs> Hopefully not the industry. But yeah, that's right. No, of course you would. I've never bought this idea that there's a kind of public face of you or someone or anyone that sort of puts on a little song and dance routine for the stupid listener who just wants to be entertained and then at five o'clock you put in your punch mm. cards and you go home and you and they're dead to you until you know the next time you're on like i just never really bought that so i i think you are who you are and you've got your job and you frankly you need the listeners much more than they need you <laughs> like say what you like you know i'm not paying their wages they're paying mine they're the punters, they're the voters, they're, the, they're your bosses. I want to quickly take you back to Studio 10 just for one more question. Um, I'm just tearing up because the day that you left Sarah Harris on air oh, yeah. nearly gutted me because <laughs> that is the kind of friendship we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. my question is this, Joe, what kind of concerts or music experiences do or did Sarah and you share that you can mention publicly? Yeah, no, um, let me have a think. Uh, <laughs> I think Sarah would love nothing more than to drag me along to a Snoop Dogg concert. Um, and, we're, 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 and we're often taking the kids to like, like... So the last thing, we both took our kids to see um, Cinderella, the musical. I'm not sure Oh, if sorry. That... I automatically went, Cinderella cut it up one time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. There's that as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've been to a couple of Wiggles concerts together. So Because every, everything we do involves the kids. But yeah, Sarah and I are still we're still incredibly close, and we talk all the time and and see each other all the time. I absolutely love the Wiggles, and I, and that again, their musicianship is second to none. It is extraordinary, and that's why that's why they're so successful. They're so successful because they take what are ostensibly or rather write what are ostensibly kids songs, and they treat them seriously. They treat they arrange them really incredibly well. They have beautiful arrangements, beautiful harmonies, beautiful instrumentation. Simon. Um, the Red Wiggles singing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star is a work of art. The album they did with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra is high art. Like, it is amazing. The Melbourne Symphony Orchestra arrangement of Do the Propeller is just, it's as good as any song out there. And we, it brings us back to, I think it was a rap artist as well who challenged them and they're like, yeah, sure, okay. Yeah. All day or one of those kind of yeah. Yeah, useful yeah, yeah, rappers. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's right. And I mean, Holly Throsby did a similar thing. Yes. Where she did... Um, I, I liked her stuff before she did the, the kids' album. But um, friends of mine would just put on, and, and me, put on Holly Throsby long after the kids had gone to bed and just put on a kids' album because the music is just sensational. And good music is good music, no matter who's, who it's for or who's listening. Award-winning author now. The, the, the follow-up yeah, to, that's right. Yeah, follow-up to Cedar Valley's out now, obviously. And she did the something. That's right. She, she violates my rule that you have to sort of be one thing or another. So Although I haven't, perhaps not for me, maybe that's why I haven't read any of her books because I have to, you know, I have to keep her unsullied as a musician. Hi, I'm Rishi K. Sherway. And I'm Joshua Molina. We're from the West Wing Weekly, and you're currently listening to Radio Notes. Radio Notes, where those in music talk life, and those in life chat music, and more. You can join us on The West Wing Weekly for an episode-by-episode breakdown of the television show The West Wing. Josh was the star of the show, and we give you behind-the-scenes insights and deep dives into the issues raised in the storylines of the show. You can find us on radiotopia.fm or through your favorite podcaster. For now, back to John Merch and Radio Notes. You mentioned on one of the last I'm Usually More Professionals um, yeah. with, sorry, I don't write this now. I want to say A.H. Catley. A.H. Cayley. And uh, former Senator Sandra 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 Diari. Diari. You were sharing 
remix of former Mayor Rudy Giuliani had been remixed. Yeah. Yeah. And you got a little uncomfortable that music had become political. So, yes. sincerely, how do you feel when music gets political? Politics has always sort of been a part of music and music's always been a part of politics. But I tend not to, um, you know, like I love my Woody Guthrie, for example, and he was nothing if not political. But again, I suppose it just has to be that the song is the thing. I'm not going to like a song or sing a song or listen to a song just because I agree with whatever political message it has. And I think often if you set out to make a song self-consciously political and to, to deliver a political message, um, the music gets sacrificed or the musicality can get sacrificed. That's not always true, but I think it's often true. You know, Bob Dylan is great but my favorite bob dylan songs are his love songs not his political songs bob dylan's visions of joanna is a infinitely better song than blowing in the wind bob dylan's you know just like a woman is an infinitely better song than the times they're changing so i guess what i'm asking is when you're listening to music there's not an aversion to hearing anything political in the lyric but for you it's just not where your head's at when you're listening to music. I think I think when you when you listen to a song, like you know, I, I suppose if I if I want to make, firstly, I would probably say I don't, you know, if if I've got something political that I want to say, I want to say it, not listen to it, and not listen to it being put to music or being told. I'm not going to form my opinion on whether Reuben Carter's guilty or innocent based on Hurricane. Right. Listening to a song about it, you would form an argument and you would make a case and. You know, and if you cared enough about something, you'd, you'd advocate for it rather than just sort of sitting around in joyous agreement with whoever. Um, I've never found that particularly useful. Um, and, and yeah, I think you listen to a song because it's a good song, because you like it and you like the way it makes you feel. And I think in most cases, and again, maybe, maybe political songs sort of do this as well, but... I think it's because you feel like there is an affinity between you and the person singing it and that I think probably gives you an affinity with humanity more broadly that you feel like yes we've all been here before we've all been through this and that's why all songs ultimately probably in one way or another are love songs like all songs are are essentially about that yearning to to be with someone, to find someone you've got a connection with and to not feel alone. I guess I'm also trying to figure out whether or not you see a place for music to be part of a movement of any sort. People can use music as much as they want for things and, and you know, music can make people feel good. Um, music can make, you know, make people, you know, if you're at a rally or whatever, um, you know, music might sort of get a bit of energy going. But it's sort of, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you look at, say, controversy over... Trump, I think Trump used, you can't always get what you want by the Rolling Stones until they said, no, we don't want you to play it. And so what does that mean? Does it mean you're going to like Trump just because you like the song? Or does it mean that if they don't play the song anymore, you're not going to like Trump anymore? Mm. Like, is he going to lose people at his rallies because he doesn't play the song or gain them because he does? The other thing is, when you listen to a song, if you don't agree with the singer's politics, does it actually change the song for you? And to me... I don't think it does. So I, was, I just saw that Kanye West is now back on Twitter, having said some pretty batch.
crazy things yes. about um, about well about some of my friends in the Jewish community, quite frankly. But does that make his song gone any less awesome? In my view, no. The song is the thing. The art is the thing. It stands alone. You know, I'm a big fan of um, musical plagiarism as well because that I think is is a way. You know, sooner or later, when you get to um, you know, when you get right down to it, there are only 12 notes yes, yes. in a scale and basically only three chords that sound really good together. And so Twist and Shout is the same as La Bamba, has the same chord progression as Wild Thing, has the same chord progression as Louie Louie. All these songs are essentially the same. If everyone got lawyered up and went after each other, we wouldn't have rock and roll. What's your favourite musical? Um, I think probably... In terms of the old school ones, I actually played Curly McLean in the Dandenong High School production of Oklahoma, just so you know. That was a big just, year, 1993. Just writing that down, Just yeah. writing that. I was in year 12, yeah. yeah. Had to wait a long time to get the, year, the, the lead role, you know. They didn't give it to just anybody. I really like 42nd Street, just because I went and saw 42nd Street in, in Melbourne and the Lullaby of Broadway, the version of Lullaby of Broadway that that production did was just the best version of the song and just the most perfect version of the song and I've been trying to find it or something like it ever since and I still haven't. I spend a lot of my time trying to find the perfect version of songs and that one just stands out to me. I was actually looking for it just yesterday and I found the Tony Bennett one and even the Tony Bennett one wasn't as good. I love Big River. Right. It's a good one. Uh, like in terms of the, the more modern ones. Obviously, Jesus Christ Superstar is fantastic. And My Fair Lady, obviously, a next level. I think you're a romantic, even if you don't think you are. <laughs> We're all romantics. We are all right. romantics. What was the wedding song, if you're allowed to share? Yeah, the wedding song was Something by the Beatles. But what was very, very funny was that we had, <laughs> you, know, you know, one of those situations where, you know, you just had one job, just one job. All we needed was just one bloke. One of my friends just had to be competent enough to just hit the play button. And, <laughs> and the first friend we had to do it was my mate Goz, who... I just love to death, but he's basically half deaf. So he's, he's, he doesn't, he can't, basically can't hear in one ear, um, but he was going to do it nonetheless. And um, one of my really close friends, he was actually going to be a groomsman for a while because my other groomsman was late, but then the other groomsman rocked up. And then I said, well, look, can you just press play? And he said, yeah. And then someone else said, look, guys, he's half deaf. You can't hear, you can't have him press. I said, all right. Because I had to sort of call out. And so we got my brother-in-law to do it instead, my sister's husband. But have, and he's like, yeah, God, you know, and he's, he's like an engineer. He's a super smart guy. He knows how to do all this stuff. So, all right, you just got to press play. And he got so nervous. He was so, <laughs> so keen to sort of do a bang-up job that, that we're literally standing at the altar and Tara's walking down the aisle. And I'm like looking at him just going, press play. And he's just kind of frozen. He's just looking back at me and smiling and nodding. And I'm like, yeah. And it's kind of like time just stood still, except it didn't stand still. It actually passed in silence. And then eventually, when she's about halfway down the aisle, he hit play. 
company. To bring it back to radio, you must really respect Kane and the work that the panel operators of Australia. Oh, he's amazing. I don't know how. I don't, I don't know how they do it. It's just like a wink of the eye, and it's just like it's there. It's ingenious. Uh, it's and again, I was just so. I remember when I first got into radio being terrified that I would actually have to do it and I think I've never felt so much relief when someone said no no no, that's all right of course as you would have learned from FM radio if you do end up panelling you end up doing the weekend shift that's exactly right that's exactly right you're always it's very important you never make yourself too useful a lot like being a husband where you have to feign incompetence you have to you have to cultivate incompetence so you're not asked to do things oh honey I'm just I can't I don't know how to stack the dishwasher Oh, but darling, I can't cook as well as you can. What's in your physical collection of music? Oh, that's a very good question. So maybe give us a picture. Is it records? Is it CDs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got, I've, got a, I've got a couple of crates full of records somewhere at my best mate's house in Melbourne that they've basically looked after for me ever since I went to Sydney. It's got the entire Beatles collection. It's got a collection called, I think, the American Songbook, which is all old folk and blues and country songs that were recorded on the back of a truck throughout uh, mostly the American South. It's got the best of Buddy Holly, a double album which has got everything you need from The Great Man. It's got a bit of Linda Ronstadt. I love, love a bit of Linda Ronstadt. You'd cut up a pretty mean dance floor? I think I can after several beers. A few, but it's probably, it's probably not a good idea. I did go through a rave period. So that was can you talk I, to I us did the Melbourne that? Shuffle. I did the Melbourne Shuffle. Yeah, I, I was a pretty big wheel in the, um, the nightclubs of Northcote back in the day. Where do you think music is heading? I'm not sure because I think it can't really um, there's only so far music can go before it becomes unlistenable and I think classical music has already gone there to be honest so I think modern classical or quote unquote classical music orchestrated music um, is so sort of experimental and avant-garde that it's kind of unlistenable I, I think with modern music like all all the energy seems to be around like rap and hip hop and black music, which is good because that's of course where rock and roll started in the first place. So there's a, a nice sense that it's sort of coming full circle, but it's but it's also becoming much more of a pastiche. So again, it's it's about sampling, it's about collaboration. Justin Bieber songs that are just absolutely amazing because he's doing collabs with people who add a completely new element to what he normally does or my previous done and I think some people have actually said he may have actually sort of given birth to this sort of new style of music because every song is a sort of collaboration I mentioned before you know Kanye West doing you know Gone for example like that is one of the best songs anyone has ever put together and of course it's it's a result of sampling and collaboration and and can you now continue to listen to that based on what we said before? Oh, yeah. God, yeah. It's fantastic. I listened to it just the other day. Yeah, it's brilliant. Like, I mean, honestly, if you didn't listen to any music just because the songwriter or the performer said something bad crazy, you wouldn't be listening to anything. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a matter of the threshold. So, you know, I won't be buying any Rolf Harris albums again because it's just impossible not to think of it. But again, there are still people who will listen to Michael Jackson, for example, and that's a live debate. My kid went through a phase, my oldest kid went through a phase where he absolutely loved Michael Jackson. And the songs just gave him, you know, he just loved it. And he thought it was fantastic. And they're really good songs, obviously. 
So am I going to then say, no, you can't listen to that because Michael Jackson was accused of being a pedophile? Like, why destroy his joy in something? That drove home that kind of idea that, you know, look, the song is the thing. You've got a kid here, no idea who Michael Jackson is, but just loves this song. It makes him really happy. Why should I corrupt or contaminate his joy by imposing some sort of ideological restrictions on, on what he can and can't listen to. So that brought it home for me. But, uh, but again, it's impossible to, for us to, to listen to or, or see it without knowing in the back of our minds that that's there. Variety TV, you've yeah. done some brilliant stuff. <laughs> I adore <Stop>. Robbo. <laughs> yes. My question does come to music on this. Does music play a part in that genre of television? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, there's a reason why so many people are, you know, so many actors are singers and singers are actors and, and people on TV used to do, it used to all be the sort of one thing. Like, Oh, hang on. We've got, we've got Sound of You and Angela Bishop singing? Uh-oh. Okay, cool. Continue. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like if you go back to something like Music Hall or whatever, like it was all part of the same event. It was all part, of, and, you know, again, if you go go to a musical you know the, yeah. the, the musicians the singers the actors the dancers are all part of the same show and there will be people who do all three or four things so and, and a variety show is basically just vaudeville or musical with a camera in front of it so yes it's a it's a very integral part of it i mean just imagine watch any tv show these days variety or not and then just imagine it without music or turn the volume down imagine watching a, a tv show without an opening theme song imagine watching MasterChef without Katy Perry singing You're Hot and You're Cold, I don't think it would be the same show. In terms of TV themes, Megan Washington, big fan of Fisk, which is on the ABC, Marty Sheargold and Julia Zemira's yep. show, has just, just a lick of it, but it just brings you in, shows here, sit down, time to be with that yeah, show. Yeah, and people... Um, so I mentioned I was in the UK. That was the year that The Office was at its peak and, and, it, and I was there when... I think the second series was just starting. So people knew what it was and they'd been waiting for this second series. This is before streaming mm -hmm. and uh, the early 2000s. And it was just... And, and there were people who would write pieces in... Like, it was, it was amazing. Like, I'd be with someone and they'd look at the time and they'd write, write they'd leave their drinks, they'd flee the pub, get back home because they had to be there to hear the first opening bars of Handbags and Glad Rags. Because without that song at the beginning of the show, it wasn't The Office. And without hearing it at the very beginning, and people would write newspaper articles about this and say when they heard that clarinet bit or whatever it was at the beginning of the song, suddenly everything changed for them. They went into a different space and they got this sort of rush because they knew good stuff was on the way. At seven minutes past three this afternoon, there will be a sting, a lick of tune to bring people into your drive show here on 2GB. Joe Hildebrand, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with Radio Notes. Thank you so much, John. It's been an absolute pleasure. Joe Hildebrand can be read in the news newspapers, seen on 7, watched on Sky News and heard on radio station 2GB. Joe is also the author of Average Joe, My Horribly Abnormal Life, out through HarperCollins Publishing.
I came home one drunken Friday evening to find my father crying on the porch. So I said, Hey, what's up, Dad? Your computer eating all your software again. And he said, No, I'm afraid it's much worse than that, son. Your mother has turned into a spider. So I said, Hey, Dad, that's really not terribly feasible. And he said, I've tried to keep my head and remain rational and reasonable But it's hard to think straight when your wife has got eight Huge hairy legs each armed with a claw Tell you I've been married 38 years now and she's never done this before She's got four extra legs and she spins enormous webs And she started laying eggs all over the place She's doubled in size, she's got six extra eyes And she started eating flies right in front of my face Really gone completely last night She told me sweetly that she had tried to eat me when we were in bed Worse than I feared, it's gone way beyond weird She's got fangs and a beard coming out of her head My mother's turned into a spider My mother's turned into a spider ah, ah, My mother's turned into a spider ah, Oh dear Spider Mother by Batters, recorded in 1997. Thanks very much to Joe Hildebrand for being our feature guest today. Next time, Kelly Lang, friend of Olivia Newton-John, to talk cancer and her life in music. Radionotespodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. Listener.